Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that you inhale about 500 to 700,000 of your own skin flakes each day. That's actually totally gross and has nothing to do with biohacking, but ew. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Yuri Ilkaim is a registered holistic nutritionist. He's a fitness expert, and he's one of those really sought-after high-performance health coaches a pro soccer player, at least previously, and he was the head strength and conditioning and nutrition coach for the University of Toronto for seven seasons running. So this is a guy who pays a lot of attention to what do you eat, what do you do to be more powerful, with a bit of a focus on athletic things. Yuri, welcome to the show. Great to be here, buddy. Thanks for having me. Uh, you got it, man. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. So what's your story, man? Uh, share with the listeners. Just give me the download. Yeah, um, well, you kind of just hit it in a nutshell. So I would say I have like kind of two separate lives. I have my previous life and I have my current life. My previous life was 
so focused and really solely focused on playing soccer. That was that was really my mission in life was to play professionally from a very young age. I had that vision. And I was able to make that happen in my early 20s. I decided to pursue it at a high level. I was actually fortunate enough to play professionally in Toronto while I still went to school. And that worked out well. And then when I finished my studies at the University of Toronto, I went over to France to play with, uh, with Lille, which is one of the top clubs over there. And it was, I mean, it was a dream come true experience. Uh, it, was, it was terrific. Um, at the same time, I had a big epiphany while I, was, while, while I was playing in France that maybe this wasn't what I was meant to be doing. Uh, I had a lot of time to introspect and really evaluate my life and my level of happiness. And to be quite honest, I wasn't really happy playing soccer. I mean, I wasn't happy living the life I thought I wanted to live. And so I had a lot of time to think about what is it that I really want to do. And previous to this, I was introduced to, um, let's say, let's call it strength and conditioning outside of, of soccer. Um, when I was 15, I actually broke my leg playing soccer. So that was my first introduction to the gym because I had to rehabilitate my muscle. And so it took obviously quite a long time to do that. And that was my first introduction to the gym, getting a gym membership and uh, I remember spending my summers in the gym. I just really enjoyed it. And I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not a huge you know, bodybuilder, but I really enjoy tweaking the human body. I mean, just like you. I mean, you're a biohacker, you know, and I'm kind of the same way when it comes to, to training the body and improving performance, at least from an athletic perspective, and especially at the time. So um, when I was 15 up until my late teens, I really spent – a good amount of time off the field, training my body, uh, getting it strong and, and performance so that when I was on the field, I really never had any injuries other than that broken leg. So I was, I was I'm a very kind of rare exception as an athlete to have really never been sidelined by an injury other than, and other than you know, that broken leg when I was 15. And I, and I attribute a lot of that to what I was doing off the field. So that really led me to pursue studies in kinesiology because I was, I was really passionate about uh, the human body and how it worked. And, and so I really didn't know what I wanted to do at university. So I said, let's just do kinesiology slash phys ed. And that's what I did. And, and I had a great time. I started actually personal training on the side while I was in school to start applying what I was learning. And I, and I fell in love with helping people. That was my first introduction to like, wow, this is pretty awesome. I get to help people lose weight, feel better about themselves. And I was kind of doing that a little bit while I was playing soccer. And then when I decided to finally retire from soccer when I was 24, I came back to Toronto, pursued studies in holistic nutrition to deal with some health issues that I had. I actually had an autoimmune disorder when I was 17. I lost all my hair. I had really low energy, bad eczema, bad asthma. Um, I'm not even sure how I was able to even play soccer in spite of a lot of those issues. But um, I didn't realize that a lot of that was nutrition related. So when I came back to Toronto, I studied uh, studies in holistic nutrition changed my life, overcame a lot of my issues, uh, cleaned up my diet, started to train my clients again, uh, and just fell in love with, with transforming people's lives through fitness and nutrition. And my goal, my mission is to help 10 million people by 2018. So within about two years of kind of regaining my clientele, I realized I can't do the one-on-one -on -one thing if I want to help so many people. Yep. So I moved my entire business online in probably about mid-2006 had no idea what I was doing for the first two and a half, three years. So it was <laughs> a lot of trial and error. Uh, but since that time, it's just been, it's just been incredible. I mean, I, I enjoy so much more what I'm doing now in terms of developing programs on a nutrition and fitness level that, you know, we're able to 
provide people all around the world. And uh, it's just, it's, it's incredible. So I'm very passionate about living healthy, leading a healthy life and, and inspiring other people to do the same. So that's, uh, that's my quick little bio. What's your URL? I mean, we're going to go through this. We'll put it in the show notes. The transcript will be at the end of the interview. But I mean, you've already given us enough of a hint there. Like, let's tell everyone listening right now. Yeah, so the, uh, the website is yurielkaim.com. So that's Y-U-R-I-E-L-K-A-I-M, as in Mary.com. And that's, that's my personal blog. That's really kind of a hub where you can check out pretty much everything we're doing. I mean, we've, got, we've developed eight completely unique businesses under that kind of umbrella and uh, a lot of amazing programs. So you can check them all up there. Cool. Yeah. Now, uh, what's your traffic level like? I mean, 10 million is a pretty audacious goal. I, I don't think I've, I've hit that. We're doing about 600,000 a month on the Bulletproof site. Yeah, we're not, we're not there yet. Not at all. I mean, well, we probably get, I mean, we've got so many different websites that, um, you know, some of them have more traffic than others. I mean, my personal blog maybe gets, you know, maybe 100, 150,000 uniques a month, right? So Let's see if we can boost that this month a little bit then. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not to your level, but, you know, we're, we're really looking at, um, I really look at building my business through engaging our, our clientele. Like we really, we're really, I mean, we're kind of handcuffed a little bit because we were slapped off Google and Facebook in terms of advertising, which is kind of unfortunate um, because apparently helping people get healthier is spammy, apparently. Uh, apparently so, when, when you told them that health included getting thicker and longer. Yeah. That, that, oh, no. I wonder, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening would wonder why they would kick you off of there. It's frustrating. I mean, we, um, last, about three months ago, we said, okay, let's, let's, let's try to get back on Google and let's work with them to see what's happening. So we spent a good six weeks with Google going back and forth in the review process. And it got to the point where they were telling us we couldn't even include benefits on our webpage. So if we, if we were to say, you know, I remember they were saying, uh, you can't include statements like, this will give you more energy. And I'm thinking, well, that kind of, I mean, what am I supposed to say about my, one of my programs? I mean, it's just like, so I got really frustrated with it and we kind of just, you know, kiboshed it, just put it to the side for a bit. And uh, so what we've been really focusing on is, is what, what is it that we can, what can we do that is within our control outside of advertising online with those two mediums that probably might be a little bit more kind of resonant with how we want to grow our business. So we've really been focusing a lot more on engagement, um, connecting with our clientele a lot deeper, uh, doing things on Facebook to grow organically. Uh, YouTube has been huge for me from day one. I mean, I've got 400 and some odd videos on there, and that's been a tremendous source of traffic for us. Uh, I'd say our best customers come from YouTube. Uh, We've got a great podcast that we started up a couple months ago. So we're really looking at growing things organically and the quality of our programs, like we put a lot of effort into making sure our stuff is the best. And when, when somebody orders one of our programs, they're just, they're blown away by the quality as well as the transformational value of it. And we get a lot of kind of viral um, word of mouth from that. So that's, you know, that's, it's, it's a fun challenge to try to think outside the box and kind of grow organically um, as opposed to looking at, you know, using Google AdWords or PPC as much as we'd like to. Well, I'm uh, wishing you luck on the, the $10 million goal. It, it's, it's amazing how the internet allows people who have specific knowledge to connect with people who want it and also just yeah. sort the wheat from the chaff. Although in my case, I wouldn't really want either the wheat or the chaff, but, uh, uh, it really, the ability of the, the community or the crowd, whatever you want to call it to decide, you know, what, what's relevant and what works and what doesn't, 
it, yeah. it's like a breath of fresh air because it's not like the Reader's Digest version of health is what's going to be there for everyone because Reader's Digest has the most readers. Uh, it's because you know the people people sort themselves into yeah. these different people who care about different things, people who are willing to listen to you know broad spectrum stuff, or people who have a specific perspective on things. Mm-hmm. Now you tend to be like a raw food good kind of guy. I'm not opposed to raw or bad, but there's times when raw food, like in the case of kale, is something that I'm I'm generally opposed to. Yeah. So what's your take on raw foods? Well, I'm not some, I, I think some people may have misinterpreted me as a raw foodie because um, one of my programs, Eating for Energy, is based on eating more raw foods, but it's not about becoming a raw foodist. Um, I've, I mean, for me, I firmly believe that eating more raw foods has always been a benefit to my health. And I know that for my body, when I'm more plant-based and more of that raw, I mean, I feel a thousand times better than if I have a burger or a steak. So for me, that's really what's worked well. And it's worked well for thousands of our clients as well. So I, I really try to approach nutrition from a non-dogmatic perspective. I understand that not everyone resonates with raw, you know, and that's completely so, fine. So you don't eat dogs because they're dogmatic? I don't, no, but I have two dogs. So, <laughs> I mean, sometimes they, they push my buttons. So they're, they're, they're a couple inches away from being thrown on the grill. But, I mean, the, the thing with raw foods is that I think there's the there's the things that we know about the vitamins and minerals and the the the, the enzymes and the stuff that we know that kind of gets denatured in the cooking process and we know that eating more raw foods is generally better for anyone no matter if you're paleo raw whatever uh, obviously in the case of you know certain green veggies like kale or spinach you have the oxalate issue um, personally I haven't really I haven't noticed an issue in terms of nutrient deficiencies from those and in different tests that I've done um, obviously with things like Broccoli, cauliflower in the raw states, a little bit tougher for people to digest. So, you know, steam those if you need to, if it's easier to, to palate. Again, you're eating broccoli, it's better than not eating at all. So I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit more forgiving than a lot of the other hardcore raw foodies out there. But I think the, you know, if you look at the research, the consensus is that no matter what it is, you know, what it is you're eating, if you can eat more plant foods, you're simply going to better your health. You live longer, uh, generally have a lower a lower BMI, lower body weights, uh, and just improve markers of health in general, anti-inflammation and all that stuff. So that's that's really my approach. Isn't there a limit, Yuri? I mean, you say eat more plant foods, but if you eat so many plant foods, you're too full to get the butter, the egg yolks, the liver, the grass-fed beef, and, you know, other nutrient-dense things that don't come from plants. Uh, Yeah. Like, isn't eat more plants kind of a little bit of a cop-out? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's... I don't know if you can really, I don't know. I mean, I don't personally know of anyone who's oversaturated themselves because the reality is that most people are getting less than about three servings of fruits and vegetables a day. So when I say eat more, I don't mean like stuff your face so that you have no room so, for anything so else. You mean eat enough. Yeah. So okay, let's that's say you're having. a different animal than eat more because eat more means like, like the guys who listen to this podcast are the kind of people mm-hmm. like I have to be careful because I, I say, look, eat, like don't eat starch on a regular Day. And I know that for most people, I've also said less than 25 grams of fructose. You'll be on a low-carb diet if you're under just 75 grams of carbs. But then I get guys who are like, I ate zero grams of carbs today other than whatever's in my vegetables, in my broccoli. And it's like, well, okay, it's actually okay for you to eat 30 or 50 grams, and you probably even do better if you do that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if people are listening to this and they're actually going to take you at the value of your words, mm-hmm. instead of eat more vegetables, what would you tell them to do? I would look at some, 
getting at least eight to ten servings. Eight to so ten servings. Look, okay, so that's the number you're targeting. That's, that's so if awesome. you want to look at it that way, I mean, you know, there's a recent study that came out of uh, I can't even remember the journal, but they were looking at uh, the number of fruits, and this was done in Norway, and the number of fruits and vegetables, or the numbers of vegetables, I guess, and fruit that people were eating. They tracked them over 15 years, and they found that those eating three vegetables per day lived three years longer. I mean, so it was, you know, just based on a questionnaire and kind of following people. Um, but simply three vegetables a day, in that case, was improving their lifespan by, you know, several years. And so the, the whole notion is like, if you're, let's say you're having grass-fed beef, right? Like have grass-fed beef with some sautéed spinach or steamed broccoli or whatever. Yeah. That's the whole idea, right? It's, it's not about, it's kind of moving away from, and I think obviously you're, you're obviously kind of preaching this message, is moving away from the processed garbage oh, yeah. and moving towards more of a natural diet. I mean, I, I have, you know, I have steak maybe once, twice a week, depending on how I'm feeling. But with that steak, I'm not having a huge baked potato, right? I'm not having a side of French fries. I'm, I'm having a huge salad. I'm having steamed broccoli. We'll have different, you know, different veggies. I'll start my day with the green juice, the green smoothie. Um, those are really simple ways to get a lot more fresh foods in, in a very simple manner, right? So that's, that's really my message is, is really about, um, again, not being fanatical about this stuff, but look at the recommendation is about five to eight servings of fruits and vegetables a day. We're not even there. I try to up that limit a little bit to challenge people. You know, eight to 10, 12 would be awesome. Um, but really, whatever you can fit into your life is going to be awesome. All right. Here's a, a question for you. Yeah. I was in London uh, a month ago, two months ago, and everyone walks around saying fruit and veg as if it's a new word. But if you look at what a piece of fruit is, it's mostly like watery candy. It's mostly mm -hmm. fructose, a little bit of fiber, and some vitamins that would have existed if the fruit was fresh, except it's two or three weeks old, so the vitamins are mostly degraded. So you've got bag of sugar water, bag of fiber and minerals, which would be broccoli or something, without mm -hmm. all the fructose. Yet you're saying fruits and vegetables. Does this mean I can eat, oh, I guess eight to ten, that's ten bananas a day. I'm one-third of Durian Rider. Um, <laughs> durian Rider. Like, oh, like, man. Okay, so... Yeah. When you say fruit and vegetables, like the fruit raises triglycerides, vegetables lower triglycerides. Like they're not even related to each other, other than that they both had roots related to how they came out. Mm -hmm. What do you tell people who want to be precise in their nutrition? Do you see a difference between those two foods? Yeah, totally. I mean, it really should be vegetables and fruit. I mean, I think fruit are important in terms of having some basic fuels if you're energetic. I mean, guys like Durian Ryder and, and, and really kind of hardcore fruitarians eating a watermelon a day, 30 bananas. I mean, that's pretty excessive. And it's, I think it's pretty, that's the end. Like, that's just, it's fanatical. They get away with it because I think of their, their activity level is so much higher than the average person. But if you're a nine to fiver and you're going to eat a watermelon every day, it, it, that's going to, you know, it's going to catch up Do, with you. The thing you, with fruit though. I was so sorry, ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, have you ever, inter have you ever met like a 60 year old person who's been on a raw fruit and vegetable diet for 40 years or something? Not, not for that length of time, but I can, I can only imagine what their teeth would look like. And it's uh, not just teeth, it's brain. I, I, oh, yeah. I know a, a couple of people like that who've spent, I don't know, 40 years, maybe it's only 30 years, but, but you know, decades on, on a diet like this. And you can see it in the ability to stay on task and cognitive function. And so yeah, you can do a lot when you're under 30 and you're exercising a lot. You can eat yeah. whatever you want. But I, I find a lot of people confuse fruits and vegetables. So they're literally like, oh, I got my four servings this morning. I put you know a pear, a banana, some grapes, and an orange in the blender. I pounded it all up. And like two hours later, they're like, 
Like, yeah. well, I don't know why I'm not feeling so good. And it's like, well, okay. So uh, no wonder. do you have a timing thing for fruits and vegetables? Or, or you know, are they, where, where do you go here with your clients? Because if you're not yeah. a pro soccer player, what's going to happen? Like, I'm, I'm not probably not as precise as you. Um, what I like, again, I like to think of it more as vegetables and fruit. So if yeah. you can focus on, let's say you're making a smoothie. Um, I'm not a huge fan of making fruit smoothies or fruit juices. The thing with fructose is that, especially in its juice, like if you're going to, a lot of people juice fruits. They'll juice like cantaloupe and watermelon and grapes and strawberries. And it's like, oh yeah, this is amazing because it's got all these vitamins and minerals. Well, the problem is that you've just stripped away the only thing preventing or delaying the, all of that fructose from leaving your stomach and going to your liver to cause havoc. So eating those in their whole state is one thing. And it's a little bit better if you kind of stagger their consumption, but having a fruit juice and just chugging it back, I mean, it's the same thing as having a Coke pretty much. Uh, maybe a little bit more nutritional value, but maybe it's debatable. With vegetables, um, again, I think vegetables provide so much more benefit in terms of especially green vegetables. You're looking at alkalizing minerals like potassium, calcium, magnesium, which really start to change the quality of the, al- the alkalinity of your blood, which um, from an energy perspective, from an overall health perspective, is the foundation of health. I mean, every disease we know of is related at some level to inflammation or acidosis, and those can be very easily mitigated by adding more greens into your diet. Now, you mentioned that with plants, a lot of this, the good stuff is kind of bound up in the fiber, which obviously it is. So one of the easiest ways to get more out of your greens is to juice them because you strip away the fiber and obviously they're not as high in, in fructose as, as the fruit are. So you get the benefit from a nutrient absorption perspective without having to worry about the fiber and not being able to digest it. So that's why I'm a big fan of uh, juicing green vegetables and then adding in maybe an apple or a pear for a bit of sweetness. And you know, with smoothies, again, really focusing more on the vegetables, adding in one or two fruit for, again, making it a little bit more palatable for most people. But then also the thing to think about with liquids is that you don't just want to chug, like, you know, you don't want to just chug your water or you chug your juice as if it's water. Take the time to chew your smoothie, chew your juice, because that activates a whole digestive process that doesn't happen unless you start chewing. You get more enzyme activation. And again, it slows down how much is coming into your system at once, which is a, which is a good thing for liver processing and digestive health in general. In your perspective, uh, working with athletes and all, what's the optimum number of meals per day for maximum energy? That's a, that's a, that's, it's, um, it's tough because it depends on the day. So I personally think that the whole five to six meals a day thing has been blown away in proportion. Um, I personally think from an energy perspective for the average person, Assuming you have healthy blood sugar levels, um, eating less actually will boost your energy a lot more. And it's actually been shown to increase your longevity as well. So that's why things like intermittent fasting, so not doing anything but drinking water for a day, could be one of the best things you do for your health once, once a week, for instance. Now, one of the things I challenged my athletes to do at the University of Toronto was we used to play Saturdays and Sundays, train Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And... One of, the, uh, one of the weekends, I think it was Thanksgiving weekend, I challenged the guys. I said, listen, after Thanksgiving dinner on Sunday night, and we, we just played Saturday, Sunday, and so they're going to have a big meal Sunday night. I said, I challenge you guys tomorrow. We're not training or anything. Just do a fast. Don't eat anything all day tomorrow. Allow your body some time to repair itself. And I don't know if many of the guys did that, but the whole thought is that 
when we're eating food all the time, we don't allow our body to, to do what it's supposed to do other than digest. So we're not allowing the repair mechanisms to take place as well as they should. Immune complexes are not being broken down. And again, with athletes, sure, they need more caloric consumption depending on how active they are. So it really depends on the day. Um, so with athletes, uh, again, personally, when I was playing, I probably had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't really, you know, other than maybe a, a post kind of post-training sports drink or something like that, I, I never really had a substantial <coughs> snack between. So I think it depends on the individual and, um, and what day they are on with respect to their training or games and so forth. But I really encourage people to think outside the box with respect to how much they need to eat because the five to six, th- five to six meals a day, if you're an average person eating that, um, what that's doing more than anything is actually keeping your insulin levels elevated all day long. And that's a problem because the, the more often your insulin levels are, circul- are, are, are elevated and insulin circulating in your blood, your cells eventually will become immune to insulin. And that's how we develop insulin sensitivity or insensitivity, insulin resistance. And uh, I think that's a huge problem. So I think that whole eat more to keep your metabolism stoked and all that kind of nonsense, I think it's way out of proportion. For athletes, it might be a little bit different, but even still, um, somebody is eating less is probably the best thing to do. That was kind of cruel of you to tell them to fast the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. You eat so many toxins and anti-nutrients and junk. Exactly. In my understanding of food cravings, in my experience, people, when they eat a lot of junk, even like the four-hour body, uh, it's sort of the, the refuel day where you just eat whatever pizza and whatever garbage you want, it causes like reverberating food cravings for the totally. next several days. So yeah. probably the hardest day to fast of all would be the day after Thanksgiving or Christmas because you ate so much dessert and pie and then right. your liver's like, please give me more glucose and fat so I can use it as fuel to oxidize all these toxins I ate and the excess protein. And your body's like, I got I got nothing. How do I get rid of all this junk? Yeah. So that's kind of funny, but yeah, that, that'll teach you to eat that junk, right? Well, the thing is, like, that was one of the only weeks where we had a Monday off. Right? Oh, so I go. said, okay, let's 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 try this. You know, I'm gonna just put this out there. And it was funny. Even even the rest of the coaching staff were like, "What? What? Not eat?" So it was, yeah, it's definitely a paradigm shift. There was a time in my life when, like, 11:45 would come around. A.M. or P.M. Uh, 11:45 a.m. Yeah. And I'd look around in the meeting. I say, guys, I'm really sorry, you know, Silicon Valley kind of thing. I said, I'm really sorry, but we're going to end the meeting now. I said, but we still have more to go. I'd say, yeah, but I'm going to have to kill one of you and eat you right now. Like, like I'm crashing. I, I got to go. And then I'd walk out of the meeting and I'd go down to the cafeteria and eat like, you know, four chicken breasts and some vegetables mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, and I, I was kind of bouncing up and down like that. And the idea of skipping a meal or breakfast or the idea of fasting for 24 hours or intermittent fast was inherently biologically offensive to me because I, I couldn't understand how a human being could survive like that because yeah. it was so far outside of my like health reality at the time. So good for you for helping people to sort of see that. And it's one of the most powerful practices I know to increase mental energy and also just to train the nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you're going to have to like change your biology to match the fact that some days there won't be food the way you want it. You know, it's time to deal with that. Man, what an upregulation in your ability to self-control yourself. Well, that's, that's just it. It's not just the physiological stuff, but it's also the emotional kind of conditioning stuff we have going on. And like when you think about prehistoric Paleolithic man, I mean, I, I, I really find it hard to believe that they had five to six meals a day every single day. 
I, I, I mean, saw the Flintstones. They had those stone refrigerators. It totally yeah, exactly. worked. Yeah. yeah, you know, maybe for them, but maybe in another area of the world, like there, there are definitely days of, of of no food. Other days where there's plenty. Yeah. And I think we tend to forget where we've come from. And even in this, you know, this this time we've been on the planet, our biology has not evolved. I mean, the time we've been on this planet is so 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 small in terms of the evolutionary scale. I mean, it's just we haven't. We're still operating on a paleolithic biology in a modern world. And we tend to forget that a lot of times. Amen. Now, speaking of paleolithic biology, let's talk about rest for a little bit. Yeah. What's your take on rest? Are you a napping supporter? Do you, how much sleep do you need? What time should you go to sleep? What should you do around sleep hygiene? Like, like give, me, give me the yeah. eerie view on sleep hacking. Okay, so this is actually a really timely question because these last two days have been a real anomaly, anomaly for me. Um, so Wednesday night, I was meeting up with some friends in Toronto. I live uh, about 45 minutes outside <laughs> the city. So meeting up with some friends, got home really late and I woke up the next morning at 6am. So I went to bed around one, got to bed at, I got, woke up at 6am, went through my day, found it a little bit more tiring than usual towards the latter half of the day, put my son to bed at seven o'clock last night. And I was reading him a story in bed and I fell asleep with him and I woke up at 930 p.m. Went downstairs, all groggy, had no idea what was going on. I'm like, I'm going to go back to bed. So I went back to bed and I laid in bed for about two hours without being able to fall asleep now. So I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, I'm laying in bed, I can't do anything. And midnight rolls around and say, okay, finally, I probably fell asleep around midnight. Again, I wake up at six in the morning. And again, today, I'm still feeling the effects of this kind of weird schedule. And the reason it's weird is because I normally go to bed and wake up at the same time seven days a week. And I think that's one of the best things anybody can do to regulate or normalize their circadian rhythms. Because I think a lot of people think that, okay, Monday to Friday, I'm going to go to bed early, wake up early, go to work, do the thing. And then on the weekends, I'm going to kind of let myself go. I'm going to sleep in, stay up late. And I really encourage people to think a little bit differently about that because one of the best things you can do just from a normalization perspective is sleeping and waking at the same time. So for me, I go to bed roughly at about 10.30 every night and wake up at 6 a.m. seven days a week. And for me, that's just the best schedule. And I find that I have no problems with my energy levels all day long, assuming that I'm obviously eating well as well. And sleep is huge. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, arguably the most important kind of uh, non-activity process that we need to be doing as humans. I mean, that's where most of the repair is happening, uh, obviously in different stages of sleep. And we are so sleep deprived in terms of the quality of sleep we're getting. I mean, the stressful lives that we live, most people don't even sleep well. They're, they're going to bed and their thoughts are racing, uh, waking up several times a night. So sleep is huge. Um, it's, it's massive. I mean, there's you know, correlations between sleep and obesity, sleep and ADHD, sleep and food cravings. I mean, you name it. Um, I should say sleep deprivation or kind of impaired sleep. Uh, it, it's, it's massively important for sure. All right. I totally think sleep is is that important for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. You don't hear, even when, when people talk about sleep hygiene, you don't hear many people talk about going to sleep at the same time, waking up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Some of the books on adrenal recovery talk about that. And I experimented with that quite a bit uh, a while back when I had pretty severe adrenal fatigue. Uh, this was going back seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. And really followed not only going to sleep at the same time, but going to sleep before 11 p.m., because there's a certain cortisol spike that happens then. The problem that I found was that for the way I've always been wired, 
there's a huge burst of energy and creativity and focus that happens at 11.15 p.m., right? So you talk to anyone who's a prolific writer, and there's like a quarter million words on the Bulletproof site and like the Better Baby book, and I have another blog about cloud security that's got 60 posts. and Like I, I produce, and there's this window that's like smack dab between like 11.15, 11.30, and 2 or 3 a.m. where all the good stuff happens. And it, hmm. it's a really tough thing to be able to reconcile that with you know, waking up and getting the kids ready for school and all. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something I've struggled with for a long time because I've always been one who's for whatever reason, this like idyllic waking up early in the morning, get my day started. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. And I struggled with that for a long time because like you, I went through a phase actually probably up until about two years ago where I was the same way at night. I would, I would like relish the opportunity for my wife to go to sleep. This is before we had kids and I'm just like, okay, now I'm going to crank out my best stuff. And for whatever reason, that changed. Maybe having kids changed a little yeah. bit. Um, but now I find my best creative time is in the morning. And so as I was mentioning before, like I'm pursuing my pilot's license. So my morning ritual now is I fly at 7 a.m. And then I hit Starbucks just because it's down the street from the airport for about three hours. And I get my best stuff done in those three hours. And it's just, um, it's incredible for me because I know that in the afternoon, I'm kind of useless in terms of writing or creativity. That's where I'll usually kind of connect with other people or do interviews and stuff you like know that. You why that is, right? It, why it's would the that coffee be? you're drinking in the morning. Well, I don't actually drink the coffee. Oh, okay, there you go. So I'm, it's usually, And if I do, it's a decaf. Um, but well, that, I don't even enjoy Starbucks you. coffee, so I usually just grab like a, uh, one of their mint teas, you know, something okay. like that. Got it. Yeah. But do you watch out for decaf? That stuff is much higher in toxins than regular coffee in terms of brain fog and creativity. Just yeah. keep, keep an eye on that. I was yeah. just giving a hard time about it's the nothing like your, It's nothing like your coffee. Your coffee is special. <laughs> no, what right. I should do is actually just take it to Starbucks and, you know, just be like, keep this stash on the side so when I come in, you guys can brew this for me. Uh, I would like to, in fact, if you ask them to do that, would you video that? Cause <laughs> that would be impressive. It would be, if, be if they could do that, it'd be awesome. Uh, yeah. you, can, you can count on them laughing at you. Yeah. But uh, I'm not trying to, you know, pitch the coffee here, but... I was actually thinking if you were drinking like normal coffee, not just Starbucks, but like any kind of normal coffee that I did find in myself that I would get a burst in the morning, but then I would really feel awful in the afternoon and I could do like the up, down, up, down, up, down thing. And yeah. that was one of the variables there. Um, when there was a, a, about a two year period when I switched to being a morning person in my own sleep hacking experiments, in fact, like you, it had to do like with around pregnancy and my first child. And the only way I could convince myself to do this was I just set the alarm for 5 a.m. every morning mm-hmm. and like put it away from the bed. So I'd get up at 5 a.m. And then if I stayed up till 2, I'm like, okay, I only got three hours of sleep. I'm going to have to cope today. And of course, then I would be tired enough to go to bed right. early. Right? So it was like a self-fulfilling instead of moving the wake-up time to get more sleep. It was just a hard wake-up. Yeah. And after a few months, I, I started going to sleep much earlier so I could get you know at least six hours. But then I, I don't know, it, it seems like after a year or two of that, it just was disruptive as well. And the alarm would go off. It wakes up other people in the house. And then as kids get older, they feel you waking up. So they wake up because they want to play And you're like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to meditate. I'm not going to do anything. Like, you know, let's, you know, let's go play. You like, you got to sleep on a tent outside or something. Yeah. That's what I do now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, might as well. It's uh, a that, good idea. That's too funny. So you, you went through that and you're still though on the morning person regime. I am. But you know, what's funny is that. So earlier this year I said, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. Every day, I'm gonna I'm gonna set a goal, and I, and I was using um, I can't even remember the name of it. One of those accountability websites where you set a goal and you pay a sum of money if you don't achieve it or if you don't stick to it. 
And so for three months, I was waking up at 5 a.m. every day, going to bed at 10. And I'm just like freaking miserable because it's, you know, <laughs> cold and dark outside. It's the winter. I'm like, what am I doing? Well, you, you live in Canada. Like, like yeah. 5 a.m. is like the opposite of anything there that you want to uh, do. So it was this real battle. I'm like, what is the bigger reason? Like, what is, do I have a big enough reason why to do this? And after three months, I said, there's no way. I mean, it's just, it takes out, I, my evenings are just so, uh, a little bit more stressful because I'm like, oh my God, I put the kids to bed at 7.30. I've only got two hours of, of kind of my, my time and then I got to shut her down. And I'm just like, this is, uh, this is no way to live. I mean, I, I run my own business. I work from home. I can kind of set my own schedule. So 5 a.m. was just brutal. So I find 6 a.m. is good. And having the commitment of knowing that I have to be somewhere for 7 a.m. is, for me, at least very helpful. So that's, that's what I've realized I need to do is I need to have that commitment to get myself out of bed to, uh, to make it happen. And obviously commit to something I enjoy doing, right? So, yeah. What do you do with athletes? Um, what time do you tell them to wake up? What time do you tell them to exercise? Uh, it really depends. I think with, um, with respect to exercise, a lot of people ask me, like, what's the best time to work out? And I say, whatever the best time for you to get your best workout in. So in my case, I don't, I'm not a morning workout person. I'll go for a walk in the morning. But if I really want to get a good, solid workout in, it's mid-afternoon, maybe early evening for me. And I think depending, like a lot of the athletes that I've worked with are soccer players. So a lot of youth soccer players, for instance, at least in Toronto, most of their games are 7 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night. So let's say like tonight I have a game at 9, 9 p.m. So I'm going to have a game at 9 p.m. I'm going to finish at 11. I'll be home by midnight and tomorrow morning I'll be getting up at 6 again. So <laughs> it's going to be an interesting, an interesting weekend. So when, when you have that kind of schedule, it's kind of, it's tricky to, to set fixed kind of sleep and wake times. Um, so it really depends on the, on the individual schedule. And what's even trickier is like, how do you even get a post-workout or post-training or post-game type of meal or recovery thing in there? So it, it becomes a bit of a compromise. Um, and, and to be honest, I think the, the most solid answer I can give you is that it really becomes all over the map um, unless you're unless your games and training are at a time of day where, you know, it's middle of the day, you don't have to wake up early, you don't have to get up, you don't have to stay up late. Um, I think that's probably the only thing I could say. Okay, now that, that makes good sense. It's, I, I hear that question a lot from the people I coach uh, with Bulletproof Coaching and just on the blog and the forums. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the best time to work out? And I, I tend to default on at the end of your intermittent fast. So you're going to work out and you can do it in a fasted state. You're going to get more benefit when you fuel afterwards. It, it seems to mm-hmm. give an added benefit, but it takes more willpower and effort to do that. And if you're not intermittent fasting, you know, you're loading up on, you know, 17 pieces of banana for breakfast or whatever. Um, well, then, you know, maybe you're going to work out whenever you're going to work out and, and there's individual variation and there's, well, if you're a cardiovascular junkie, then it's a different kind of workout than someone yeah. who's, you know, lifting heavy things and, you know, making grunting noises. So it, it, it really depends on, you know, who are you, what do you do, what exactly. do you like? Uh, okay, well, let's talk about habits then. Mm-hmm. What are the habits when you're dealing with people in your, your coaching practice around sports? Like, like, what do you recommend that people pick up? What habits or practices do they change in order to change how they think about exercise or how they think about health? Like, what are the brain and mental things versus the physical things that, that yeah. people should do? Well, I'm a really big believer that all physical change begins internally. 
So whether they want to lose weight, work out, uh, gain muscle, it all stems from what's happening internally and how they see themselves as individuals. So the first thing, I really get people to, well, the first most important thing is obviously to set a goal. Um, I think a lot of people just don't even take this time to set a goal or write it down. So getting in the habit of writing down a short-term goal, a long-term goal, and, and rewriting those goals on a daily basis. Um, one of the things that I found the most powerful for me from a habit perspective is keeping a journal. So in the morning and at night, so first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and this might take five minutes out of your day, is uh, do a couple things. Is First of all, write down what it is that you want to accomplish today. Like what is what what can you do today to make today an amazing day? So whether that be in your work, your your activity, whatever eating, whatever it is, write down three to five things that are going to make today amazing. Then write down three to five things that you're grateful for. What is it that you are grateful for in your life? And I think gratitude is one of the it's probably the most powerful emotion to feel in terms of raising happiness. It's it's way more way more powerful than winning the lottery um, in terms of sustained happiness. Have you tried that? I have actually. No. I actually wrote a blog post last week about why I don't want to win the lottery. Nice. And um, it was it was actually it all comes back to this this habit thing because let's say you win the lottery, a lot of people you know a lot of stories have been told about people blowing the money or losing it oh, yeah. within a very short amount of time. Well, if you are hovering around the poverty line and all of a sudden you win the lottery, well, what has changed between? I mean, you went you're broke today and you're rich tomorrow. What has changed in 24 hours? You haven't changed your habits. You haven't changed your saving habits, your spending habits, your relationship with money. None of that has changed. And yep. the only way that can evolve is by you evolving as a person. And so that's why I was kind of talking about that and then relating it back to weight loss because talking about like lap band surgeries or quick, you know, quick fixes and little magic pills, it's not about the weight loss, right? It's about who you become in the process to get to that, that goal you want to achieve so that you can enjoy that for the rest of your life, right? I mean, what's the point of losing 20 pounds to just put it on the next month? So these habits are really what it's all about. So I think having that morning where you have that uh, three to five things you're grateful for, three to five things you look forward to accomplishing today to make it amazing, and and just you know maybe writing down one or two affirmations about yourself. So you could, you know, however it is you want to be in your life, in your day, write down that affirmation in the present, like, I am an amazing, sexy person like Dave Asprey, right? Something. I write that one down every night. How did you- yeah, there you go, right? So something like that. And that's that'll take like three minutes out of your morning. I mean, I actually do this on the toilet. I keep my journal on the toilet. So when I go to the bathroom in the morning, I do it there. And when I go to the bathroom at night, before I go to bed, I finish out the, the last couple parts of the journal, which are essentially um, recapping your successes from the day. So again, I'll write down three successes that made this day amazing. And I think that's very important because a lot of us tend to think about where we are not at as opposed to what we have done. And I think that gap is, is a very big uh, culprit for a lot of unhappiness. So kind of looking back and reflecting on small successes doesn't have to be huge. It could be little things. I took out the garbage, you know. Build on these small successes and you're going to feel a lot more confident. And then – I have a – before you move on, I have a yeah. question. You've done something three times when you're talking about this. You're doing this. And for people just listening, you're you're mimicking like you're writing on paper. When you say writing down, you actually mean using a pen or a pencil on a piece of paper instead of yeah. typing, don't you? Yeah. Why is that? Well, um, I haven't done the research, but from what I've heard, I think there are actually nerves in your thumb that 
like signal some kind of imprint in your brain when you're writing things down. But I think the, I don't, I don't know what it is. I think there's just some level of connection when you're using your hand in a written pattern versus typing on a keyboard that is just a little bit more powerful. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, amongst yeah. a lot of the therapists and psychology types uh, that I've talked with and worked with, uh, there is something neurological about putting pen to paper. It, it makes yeah. things tangible and real. Yeah. My own belief there is that it's talking at the, the level of your nervous system or a computer screen. So it's just too abstract. But there's something yeah. that happens below your level of consciousness, and it, it seems to have a different effect. I, I've noticed the same thing, and I don't know why it is. And it's sad if you're a tree that that's the case. But, hey, yeah. it, it is that way for human biology. So it's cool that yeah. you picked up on that. And, and I think too is like if you become like aware of this, like if you're typing and like for me when I type, I spend a lot of my time backspacing and deleting and correcting just because I, I make errors when I'm typing. And there's a little bit more disconnection when you're typing. I think when you're writing, you're just you're so much more involved and you're watching the letters being formed and there, it's just a little bit more of an intimate moment. And, and there's definitely something that's you know, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something more powerful about writing it from hand. So, you know, that's what I'll do. And I think the the last thing is probably one of the most important things from a productivity perspective is the night before. So in your journal or in a separate little cue card is write down what are the five or six things I will accomplish tomorrow. And I can, this is by far the most powerful thing I've ever done uh, for productivity because when you go to bed, knowing that you've already written down what you're going to achieve tomorrow or what you're going to work on, when you wake up in the morning and you go to your office or you go to your, you know, your laptop or whatever you, know, whatever you do for work, when you don't have to think about that, it's when you reduce the friction in your life and the friction in your brain, it's like you're reducing the load on your computer. You're, you're kind of, there's less stuff going on. You just know this is what I do first, this is what I do second. And you don't have to worry about all that stuff. So you get better sleep, but you also get better productivity the next day because it's like, okay, boom, I'm going to spend 90 minutes doing this. And then boom, I'm going to move on to step number two, step number three. And then it's so simple, but it's so powerful. And I think like if, if it doesn't matter what you do, if you're an entrepreneur or or not, um, just that simple act of writing five or six things down that you will accomplish tomorrow in order of priority where you tackle the most important thing first. Uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, it's probably one of the best things I've ever done for my life. And I've been doing that for five or six years now. Way cool. Yeah. So those are my habits. And those are the kind of things that I encourage anyone to do, regardless of their goals. So if they want to play pro sports, lose weight, eat healthier, it all comes back to those fundamentals. That's actually a great segue because we're running out of time. And there's a question that everyone who's ever been on the show, except that one guy where I forgot. <laughs> um they always answer this question. And out of everything we just talked about and everything else you've experienced in your life, it doesn't have to be anything at all related to sports or diet or anything. But what are the top three things that are most important for people to know if they want to be higher performance, to kick more ass, and to be more bulletproof? Like your top three most important things that life has taught you. Just kind of lay them out one, two, three. Uh, number one is add more green juice to your life. Secondly is to believe in yourself or have faith in some other higher power. And number three is to surround yourself with a surround yourself with an uncomfortable environment in the sense that you can only grow to the extent of your inner circle. So 
be around better people, be around bigger people, not necessarily uh, kind of um, height-wise, but just bigger people playing at a larger level in life. If you yeah. want to play better tennis, play somebody who's better at better than you. If you want to, you know that the whole principle of just kind of taking your game to the next level is huge. So, green juice it up, believe in yourself for a higher power, and surround yourself with uh, with better people. Wonderful, thank you for that. Absolutely. Final question: Tell us your URL one more time so people who heard this interview or watched it on YouTube mm-hmm. can know where to go to see you. We'll put all of these URLs in the show notes and in the transcript on bulletproofexec.com if you can't find it. In the meantime, give us your domain one more time and spell it slowly. Yes, so it's yurielkame.com. If you were able to spell that without me telling you, that'd be amazing. Um, the spelling is y u r i e l k a i m dot com. Yuri, thanks a ton for taking the time today to be on the show. We'll Absolutely, talk soon. it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.